Welcome to the Future Think podcast from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with my colleague, Andrew Maynard, we chat with a variety of experts on and off campus about science, technology, innovation, and policy. This podcast brings you the hallway conversations where we think about our collective future. In this episode, Andrew and I talked with colleagues Jamie Wetmore and Ira Bennett. Jamie and Ira together are co-directors of the Center for Engagement and Training in Science and Society, or SENSE, which is one of the research centers here in the School and Institute for the Future of Innovation in Society. We talked about what the recent movement of populism that we're witnessing in the United States and in Western Europe has to say about experts and expertise and intellectualism. And we hope that you enjoy this conversation. I will give you a little bit of a preview. We do mention an article that our colleague Dan Sarowitz recently published in The New Atlantis, and we will have Dan on the podcast in a very soon upcoming episode. Before we start, as always, I beg you to please tell your friends about the Future Think podcast and tell us what you think about the podcast, the content, what we're doing, who you'd like to hear from on the podcast, what kinds of questions you'd like us to uh, to mull around in our minds. You can tweet at us at FutureThinkPod. You can reach us on our Facebook page, FutureThinkPodcast. You can always subscribe to the FutureThinkPodcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please feel free to rate us and leave us a review. We would really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Hi, guys. Hi, Heather. Hello, Heather. Hi. We're going to talk about expertise and intellectualism and what we think that our environment, uh, our country, other countries, the world right now has to say about these notions that here in our privileged position at a university, we have, I think, taken for granted for a long time. and. Jamie and Ira, you guys do some work that really pushes outside of that ivory tower uh, edifice. Into right? different ivory towers, yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Smaller, ivory, ivory huts. <laughs> ivory huts. And so we do a lot of work in science museums um, and trying to find ways for the general public to have discussions about their own values, their own desires, in conjunction with as they learn about the science and the emerging technologies. Um, and I do say ivory huts because it's interesting. The demographics that do go to science museums are very, very specific. They're they're not a representative sample of, of the American public. And actually, right. this is something that the science museums are very self-conscious of, very worried about, and take a number of steps to try to push beyond the white upper middle class uh, population. That so, so, so granted that I, you're just looking at a small sector of the population then, do you actually see evidence within that population that people are uh, railing against experts at all? Or I mean, what's the landscape look like? Are we just making up something here? Are we feeling threatened as academics that people might not like us or trust us anymore? Well, I think in the science museum space, the audience there 
is a group that buys into expertise, right? right? Mm -hmm. That's why they come to a to a brick and mortar institution that's telling them sets of truths uh, around science, mm -hmm. right? Um, right? You know, they are whiter than the rest of America. Mm -hmm. They're richer than the rest of America. They're better educated than the rest of America, and there is some evidence that they vote at a higher rate than the rest of America. Right. Okay. Right. So, so that's that population. Um, that being said, you know, we as a nation state elites that talk about science have told a number of lies about science and its relationship to social progress and, and other so, things. So give us an example. Yes, yes please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, stem cell research will be able to produce therapies that will cure cancer and a variety of other illnesses in the very near future. Okay, if so you okay. just give us the money to do the research. Okay, so we, we, we've sort of spun things in order to benefit ourselves. We've been overly optimistic. I, I haven't made those lies, personally. <laughs> yeah. so, so when I say ourselves, yeah. I'm referring to the other ourselves. <laughs> yes, the other ourselves. So. Yeah. And we're seeing that play out right now. Um, you know, there are over 600 stem cell clinics across the United States, completely yeah. unregulated by the FDA, making a number of claims about what they can do, and there's a large population of people willing to drop five to $15,000. So... So as a result, right? So, so what you've actually both just said, I'm sure, is going to upset a lot of people who say that's absolute heresy. Science is truth. What are you talking about? Um, so, just explain a little bit more this sort of dichotomy between this ideal of, of science as the the sort of the vessel of truth and this idea of uh, misleading people in order to do something or achieve something. Well, I mean, a lot of this comes from. Some some stuff that Dan Sarowitz has published in in recent years, which is essentially uh, that that scientists have been writing a lot of checks that um, that their butt can't cash around the types of promises that they've made mm -hmm. of the things that we are going to be able to do with the outcome of this massive federal investment into science and technology that we make uh, that the taxpayer, taxpayers spend as well as this massive public support that they've been able to garner mm -hmm. by creating these really positive visions of, sure. right. of what we're going to have but we're still waiting for a lot of those to come true yeah and you know I talked to a lot of scientists and they're concerned about this too a lot of times they'll say though I have to frame my research in a certain way so that I will get funded. Right, yes. right. And we all know that I'm not going to cure cancer in this $200,000 research grant, but I have to make allusions to that in order to build the public support. So, so where do you think that that push comes from? Is it from the funders, um, or is it just some, some natural progression within the scientific community? Why have we ended up here? I don't know that it's a natural progression, but it is a progression. Right. It's, there is That's no fair. one big center here. Mm -hmm. It is sort of as expectations and as the format builds over time, we've sort of yeah. gone down this path. And as as research, as getting research money becomes more competitive, not as scientists will tell you, because we're losing research money mm -hmm. because we're creating so many more scientists. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So mm -hmm. there's the structure within this to create um, the the. The, one of the commodities that come out of, of university science is more scientists. Mm -hmm. right. And a lot of them, and many of them, are only trained to do their boss's job, so they head down that path. And so mm -hmm. we create this massive amount of competition just by creating tons and tons of scientists. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They have to fight tooth and nail for every scrap of funding and whatever it takes. Right, so with this mass of young scientists who are emerging into the marketplace of those who are competing for a finite amount of funding, right, to do their work, 
how does that jive with the message that we, I think, need to understand from the presidential election that says that a lot of people are really pushing back against this idea that there are people who are experts who are doing work and telling us what we should think about things, right? So, I mean, I, again, I'd, I'd point to a, uh, a piece that, that Sarah was published in, in Nature, I think, one of his columns, which, which stated, if you have, a, if you have a, a collection of people where the, um, the things like science and technology are not bettering their lives, mm -hmm. right? You have a collection of people that don't see the necessity sure. of an enterprise that does that, mm -hmm. right? So they've been told a set of lies by, by a scientific elite and a technological elite mm -hmm. about how their lives are gonna get better. That hasn't over multiple decades mm -hmm. now, right? Mm -hmm. They no longer see that, and, and I think the election says, by extension, a functional federal government needs to exist. Okay. Well, the, I mean, the other thing too is, um, looking at it from different perspectives. So we had actually a master's student here a couple of years ago do a project on some power plants in Arizona that were shut down mm -hmm. because to meet the revised EPA regulations would require such an expenditure of money it was no longer worth keeping them going. Okay. And what she did was not look at whether or not the EPA used good expertise, had come up with good scientific reasonings, all of that was valid, but it destroyed the lives of you know a couple communities in rural Arizona. All of the people there, um, you know, we're out of a job. And, okay. and as a result, it's not that people necessarily think the experts are wrong, but if the experts, if the, if the decisions based on expertise continues to result in a worse world from them, the, for them, why not reject the experts? And I well? wonder whether okay. this is actually a bigger driver in many cases. Certainly if you look at Brexit in the UK and uh, the recent election in the US, you get the sense that people are looking at what's important to them personally, what's of value to them in their lives, and if they can't see that value, they're not going to go with what some scientist in one of your ivory towers mm -hmm. says. They're going to go with something that sort of is in their gut, irrespective of whether their, their gut instinct is right or wrong. That's what's going to drive them. And you can understand why, I, to a certain extent, we all do that. We go with what selfishly is important and relevant to ourselves. Yeah, and you know, we can call people selfish, but when they have no job and no future, well, that's right. right. Maybe they're not being so selfish. Exactly, yeah. yes, yeah. So I also want to play devil's advocate a little bit, sort of being a scientist and having made sort of my career on being a scientist. And of course, you know the pushback where you, you, you talk about sort of the lies that scientists tell. I We, and I'm putting on my scientist hat here, will say, well, A, of course we have to sort of demonstrate the benefit of, of what we're planning to do so we're actually in, encouraged to sort of say how our work is going to change the world um, b we won't get any more money if we don't show that relevance and c science is self-correcting over time okay it may be flawed in the short term but over the long term peer review and the whole process of science make sure that we actually get to more fundamental truth than we have at the moment so how does that jive with this idea of, of scientists being Dishonest, and I'm putting that in, in inverted commas here for the, <laughs> for the people listening. <laughs> um, it's it's interesting, right? Because everything you said about science being self-corrected, we can critique all that, but I'm not going to right now. Mm -hmm. Let's assume all of that is true. Um, that doesn't solve the problem that was created. It's, right. It's not that scientists are doing mischievous things. It's not that scientists are doing work that isn't valuable. 
but when there's a mismatch between the public vision of what's possible and what's scientifically possible, that's where the problem comes mm -hmm. in. Right, right, right. And, you know, I've talked to students about this a lot, and, and they sort of insist, you know, we've got to be able to sort of, you know, not, not completely lie, but actually sort of up the ante a little bit, maybe say a little more than we think is possible just to get the attention. The question what comes, and Ira said this earlier, what happens when that check comes due? Yeah. Right. I mean, this is, this is a fall that we've been setting ourselves up for for a while now. Yeah. And when we can't actually deliver. I, so I, I, one thing that keeps recurring in, in my work is this need for humility, which I think gets mm -hmm. to that, rather than the hubris of creating this, this vision where you say you're going to solve all the world's problems, being a little bit more humble about what you can actually do and what you can't do and where you need to work with other people. But I don't know now if we can correct that. Right, because we, we have right. all this massive infrastructure, right, of funding, and I don't know, I mean, you guys will know better than me, but when was the last time that humility resulted in grant dollars? My next says, I'm going to do some stuff. I don't think it'll work, right. but you might want to give me some money just in case. Right. I'm not but sure that will work. I would, I would go shot. for DARPA there. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there are, there are funding agencies that allow you to fail spectacularly and save face, and DARPA's one of them. Right. 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 But if you want NSF money, you better damn well show that it's going to work right. before you do it. So, and then so in which case... So, so, actually, let, so let me ask you a question there. So look specifically at NSF and NIH um, with their, their grants. So I, we've actually got a long history of people that overpromise when they put in the grant mm -hmm. and then they do the work and they under-deliver. Mm -hmm. And this has been going on for decades. So how come it still happens? How come nobody's got wise to the fact that nobody actually delivers as much on their research as they promise they will do? Because it kept working. It kept <laughs> right. work. Well, and it's, a, it's a, a, a jury of your peers, right? And so if everybody's right, right. doing it and that's the system oh, this works, is getting, right? So this is getting dark. So it's this little sort of ivory tower club why do you keep pointing at me when you say Ivory Tower? That's I'm not sorry. fair. <laughs> but, but now think of yourself as someone who feels as though they've been abandoned by these large federally funded yeah. things, and you're looking at a structure that spends $150 billion a year mm -hmm. and doesn't seem to include you in, in their mm -hmm. progress, right? You could certainly see a group of people going, yeah. It is an it is a cabal right, of right. ivory tower people right. that are that are perpetuating a set of money so that they can live these highfalutin faculty lives. Right, right. So yeah, right. So so how do we fix this? And I, again, sort of speaking as a scientist, well, I, I, oh, yeah, sorry, Jamie. We, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. So I think the first step to fixing it yeah. is to realize I don't think we're in as bad a situation as we think. Okay, good. And the reason is because. And again, I haven't seen these lately, so it would be good to have the latest statistics. But for a very long time, uh, even as late as five years ago, there were all these statistics about when well, they do phone phone calls, you know, which different professions are you most likely to trust? Yep. Nurses, um, number one, <laughs> nurse, always. Nurses are always up there. Sometimes mm -hmm. firefighters Often. trump nerf nurses. Yes. Um, but scientists are always top five. Um, scientists are always up there. Now, when you add science and the political ramifications of science, mm -hmm. then people get a little more right. confused, yeah, or a little right. more upset. But, but, but by and large, I think, at least in the American public, there is a large support for scientists and for science. Right, right. But polling, right? 
I am just <laughs> wondering yeah, yeah, yeah. who are they asking? You've got a problem with polling? Yes, I might have a problem with polling. <laughs> Only people who have telephones by that's right. anymore. But well, that's why Jamie said five years ago was the last day they sure. Yeah, yeah. But 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 I think that the, you know, again, when we talk about the science as we are, we're talking about it as this big federally funded initiative, right? Mm -hmm. That doesn't, you know. I do think most scientists are altruistic that get up every morning trying to make America a better place. Um, it just gets complicated when you have to make an argument about why you're going to take taxpayer dollars mm -hmm. to do that. And then you have these people whose tax dollars are being taken and they're wondering what they're getting for their roughly $500 a piece, if you average it out across America, that right. each person spends on science in Europe. Right, right. The other thing is, you know, what is the science that we choose to do? Yep. We can do lots of wonderful, great science, but if it isn't science, science that benefits the broad array of American people, the the they might get upset. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, and right. you know, one way we see this, and I don't want to draw over any strict strict correlations, but the diversity in our scientific workforce does not match the diversity of our American public. Right. That's and, true. And if that results in our scientific workforce working on projects that don't benefit the diversity of the American people. That only exacerbates the problem that we're talking about. If you like this podcast and you're enjoying the conversations that we're having, you might be interested in our master's program in science and technology policy. You can get more information online at sciencepolicy.asu.edu. And now back to the conversation. So now we, we have the challenge and we're beginning to explore maybe how you don't fix this necessarily, but how you actually sort of change the, the landscape. Um, so clearly, and I, I would actually argue that there's, there's a rationale for a small amount of research which is investigator driven. So those ideas, those insights that you only get if you're deeply embedded. But I think from what you're saying, there's also an argument where we have much more public engagement in the sorts of questions we're asking as, as researchers and how we go about answering them in a way which is actually useful to society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can give you a quick example of that. We had a graduate student here at ASU who is into haptic belts. And for those of you that don't know, a haptic belt is a belt that vibrates in different places. Right. And he was yep. a computer scientist, and he was gonna use the haptic belts. Here was his goal. He thought, blind people can't see objects. They need mm -hmm. to be able to navigate a room. I'm gonna build a haptic belt and a mm -hmm. video camera system that scans the room and tells the people where the poles are, where the doors are, mm -hmm. we'll be able to navigate a room. But he took a really important first step, which is he decided to sit down with a room of blind people and explain his idea. That is shocking. Shocking, right? Yeah. <laughs> the people in the room said, please, God, no. We don't need yet another technology to help us find poles in a room. Mm -hmm. um, we have these things called canes. They work really, really well. We know mm -hmm. you don't use them, but we do, and they work really well. Uh, and he's like, all right, fine. What do you need? And it's interesting, after a conversation, they came up with an idea that I would never have thought about and he would never have thought of, which is, they said, look, it's not moving through the world physically that is our problem. It is moving through the workforce that is our problem. Mm -hmm. mm. He said, blind people have a real struggle moving up in a corporation because management skills are very difficult for us. Right. And one of the basic reasons management skills are difficult for us is because we can't read a room. Mm -hmm. We can't have a room of our employees in front of us and be able to see who's happy, who's sad, who's frustrated, who's mad at me. Can you solve that problem? Mm -hmm. And so his dissertation was to come up with a haptic belt, because he loved haptic belts. <laughs> 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 Never go too far from the technology. <laughs> no, a haptic belt 
and a video camera system that would read the facial expressions of the people in a room and it would tell through the haptic belt who was smiling, who was frowning, who was frustrated. And that simple little idea, again, you know, right. a, a one-day conversation with potential users of his device yeah. completely changed his approach and made something that was so much more useful for the group he was trying to help. I mean, he started this wanting to help a group of people that are disadvantaged, right? right. But it was only through talking with them that he actually come up with a research project he that really He understood the nature of the challenge, yes. Yeah. And so, uh, some of the work that I do uh, takes this approach, um, but looks at uh, at the federal agency. Mm -hmm. So we just finished a project with, with NASA, uh, which we call a participatory technology assessment, where NASA had, it, had some different missions that they were considering that were sort of equally interesting scientifically and equally challenging engineeringly. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's a word. Uh, it ought to be. It ought to be. Yeah. Um, and we actually developed a representative, we, we, we uh, gathered two representative populations mm -hmm. Uh, one in Arizona and one in Boston, and asked them, what do they think uh, the mission should be? What interested them? We spent a day teaching them about asteroids and asteroid uh, science, mm -hmm. and then uh, while we were teaching them, we were asking them a bunch of values and opinion questions about how we should be doing asteroid science and what sort of missions we should be doing. And ultimately, they came up with, with an opinion about the type of uh, uh, mission that NASA should be doing. Right. Um, which is another way to involve publics early on, right? Right. Yes. This is at yes. this is at the fundamental decision of what type of science this is going to be a multi-billion-dollar thing that's going to take fifteen years to do. It's going to happen in deep space, mm -hmm. right? With technologies that don't yet exist. And NASA was interested enough in this to start um, start the conversation with the public. Yeah, yeah. So should it be in order to help science save itself? Should it be a requirement? I mean, should this be policy at the federal level for funding agencies that projects must start with the end users informing what the science should be in some way? You know, I, in all the projects Ira and I have done, we have always shied away from telling specific people to do specific things. Okay. Because um, if you start telling every scientist that they've got to go out and interact with the public before they do research, Look, there's some people in every profession that's going to alienate people. There are some scientists you really don't <laughs> want to help. That's exactly right. And I and I have always maintained that there is definitely a group of scientists who want to be hidden away in a lab that don't want to interact with the outside world, and they can, can, can produce great important public value from that, and maybe we should just let them stay in the lab. Um, but the one thing, just wanted to follow up on what Ira was saying before, when we convene these interactions between the public and scientists. The one thing I'm continually amazed about is how surprised the scientists are yep. about how thoughtful the public are. Mm -hmm. When you give them the time, when you give them the chance, when you give them the knowledge and the discussion space, um, and don't make huge number of assumptions before you meet with them, it's amazing actually. I mean, the yep. things you can learn from the public, the things that scientists can learn from the public. Okay. Yeah, and I mean, from, from what I'm gathering as well is, I, there are a lot of ways you can do this. Um, in terms of just getting and um, talking to people, engaging with people, getting feedback from from different groups, it's not like there's one solution to, to one set of challenges. Yeah, I mean, I th um, your question reminded me of this of this story, and I don't know how you know urban legend sort of thing, but it's you know um, in the in the in the polio times, if you had polled people about what to do about polio, mm -hmm. you would have gotten. Um, 
a bunch of ideas about how to make the iron lung better, right. rather than than um, than the move towards a vaccine. You know, and who knows where where the reality lie in that. But it does it does sort of force me to remember that the people who have large quantities of expertise can imagine things that people who don't have that. Of course. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but right. this so, is. Yeah, I think that that's important that we. It isn't all about democratizing science, right? But there right. are points in which we decide when we make decisions in which a public influence can be important, yep. mm-hmm. um, and there are places where I think the role of expertise is still real. Sure. Right, right. So, so that attests to the idea of not asking people to necessarily be the scientists or find solutions, but being part of the um, the, the process of defining the question and possible ways forward. So if you understand what's really important to people, you then, as a group of experts, can begin to work out how you address that thing of importance. Yeah, and remember, if we're talking about democratizing science, we're not saying that the public gets to vote on how many atoms, or I'm sorry, how many, <laughs> how many electrons are in a, a helium atom. Right? Yes, right. Yeah, just to make that really clear. Yes. 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 That's not what we're talking about. Right. Um, there Although, are, let's be clear, you know, a scientific fact like, is Pluto a planet, was decided by a vote. That's, that's, right. that's, right. that's, that's right. true. And there are a lot of very unhappy people because yeah. of that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, but when you think about first steps, again, you know, there are different different approaches for lots of different people. One thing that you hear more and more discussed around academia is, can you explain your research to your grandmother? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. But this, sometimes we've missed the second step of that. Um, can you explain it to your grandmother? And then can you listen to what she says about your research? And does that have any impact on you? Yeah. Oh. Um, so, I mean, I for a very long time, my great uncle, I told him about my research, and he one day he confessed to me that he didn't think I had any benefit for the world. <laughs> 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 and it took more conversation between the two of us for him to begin to realize, oh, actually what I was doing was to yeah. benefit yeah. a broad array of people. And it's those conversations that are key, so that you know what you can bring, but also you can reflect what other people are wanting you to bring to the world. Yeah. And that gets to another piece of work that Jamie and I do, which is which is training scientists on how to listen. Yes. Um, and that doesn't come naturally. When you have been throughout your entire educational career, which for you know your standard chemist or physicist can be uh, you know nine or ten years post high school plus another five to seven in postdoc, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're being told that you're an expert. Yeah. Being trained as an expert and how to behave as an expert, and then we know now we're telling you to listen. And I wonder whether that actually brings us back to that original question about trust in expertise. Yeah. Just yeah. This, I mean, I'm sh- this is a complex issue, but that one step of listening mm-hmm. and serious listening, where you actually take information in and respond to it rather than just sort of shutting off. That seems to be incredibly important. Well, yeah, and in science and in applied sciences like healthcare, I mean, we train healthcare providers to wear this cloak of invincibility as experts. And all of a sudden now we're trying, we understand that, oh, wait, we have to listen to patients and people? That is, I mean, that's nuts, right? Um, but it's critically important. Right. Um, I, it also, I, so getting to the ethics of things as well, it confers dignity to people mm-hmm. as well. So if you're not careful as an expert, if you don't listen, you're basically relegating them to a sort of rung lower than what you think you're at. Whereas mm-hmm. actually being prepared to listen, you actually elevate their dignity and you respect that. Right. And part of it is, what are you an expert in? Right. I mean, the majority of scientists in this country and around the world are not experts in science policy. 
they're not experts in how do we take what we know about climate change and come up with political solutions to climate change. Um, and it's when people make that jump that if, if, if you claim more expertise than you actually have, then your, your, all of your expertise becomes to come to call it into question. Yes. That's not to say the scientists shouldn't engage in these political discussions. We absolutely need that. Mm -hmm. well, that's, but I think that's really important. How, you know, how many people who are an expert in, in lasers that measure CO2 concentrations that will then also tell you to buy a Prius? Right. Because right. they made this jump from laser atmospheric science <laughs> to, call sale, so to, to car sales, and, and, and this somehow is, is a solution to a problem that they perceive with their laser. Right. So if we were to try to tie this up with a bow, as in my Pollyanna-ish way I like to be able to do, um, <laughs> knowing that these bows are really not meaningful except to spark future conversations. You just want the next podcast set up. Uh, yeah, I, yeah I, can't, I cannot tell a lie. Um, but it seems like maybe one step that we as intellectuals and experts could take to sort of overcome this push against expertise from the public, however one wishes to think about that, is understanding that science and expert doing must be a team sport. And not one person, not one field is going to have all of the expertise that it takes to you know, address uh, problems in the world and to engage with the public and that there's not a single public that science and technology and education and intellectualism must engage with. So understanding that we all need buddies to do this work with and then going forth and doing this work with these new friends we didn't know we had to make maybe when we were in training. I mean, could that be a start? I, I think so. So, um, plus the fact, the really important realization, going back to Jamie's point, that actually none of us are experts with expertise that broad, and everybody has got a slice of expertise to bring right. to the table, whether you consider yourself uh, an academic, a member of the public, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so respecting that, um, that lack of expertise that, that we have and that um, level of expertise that others have others have is actually really important here. So if we can find the expertise in everyone, is that it? That sounds like a platitude, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, there's some really good studies that show that people with on-the-ground experience understand that area of the world better than somebody coming in from the outside with analytical tools. And, sure. and, and to be fair, um, with all the people that I've spoken to in my life, or the focus groups I've been to, everything else, I don't think I've met any really unintelligent people. People are generally pretty smart, and mm -hmm. most people have got valuable insights in some area. And mm -hmm. if we're able to actually listen to them and incorporate them into a broader conversation, I think we can make progress. Is that the, that the platitude? That, that, yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, it's a bit longer than a platitude. It's what, what comes next, but yes. <laughs> So what do you think? You're the quote experts, right? <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Tables have turned. <laughs> I mean, I think the thing that I'm coming away from these recent discussions is really when there is a set of facts that make your life miserable, there is a completely understandable human decision to reject. If not those facts, the facts and the politics that come with it. Mm -hmm. um, and so 
there are lots of sets of facts, and they can all be right. But uh, if we're going to keep science as strong as it is now, it needs to better reflect the goals and desires of the people that are paying for it. Okay. Ira, you done with I'm, that? I'm good with, I'm good with that. Um, I mean, it also, I think, behooves experts to not be jerks about being experts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it, well, it behooves everybody to not be a jerk about being anything, right? <laughs> That's the platitude. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jamie, Ira, thanks. For more where that came from, including our undergraduate and graduate programs, check out the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at sfis.asu.edu. The Future Think podcast is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at Arizona State University. Our music is by Mark Van Hare. Our production assistant is Ana Lopez. Please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, and on Twitter at FutureThinkPod.